I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. The Future of Mobility Podcast is focused on the pursuit of safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation of goods and people. Given the critical nature of the world's climate and energy needs, these topics have never been more important, and they're certainly important to me. So, this podcast is a weekly interview series in which I learn from and put the spotlight on the people helping to develop and implement the technology required to move us forward. Who am I? As mentioned, my name is Brandon Bartnick, and I'm an engineer who realized that making a positive impact is the most important thing to me, both through this podcast and my career in the industry. If you're passionate about any of the topics I cover here, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to connect. Also, if you hear anything you like, please consider sharing the future mobility with a friend or colleague. This podcast is brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Technology innovation is great, but it doesn't mean anything if we can't bring our impactful products to life, which means we have to build them. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done, especially for startups and evolving companies that need a reliable option for low volume builds. That's where we come in. Edison is your turnkey manufacturing partner, specializing in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you need a trusted manufacturing partner, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to reach out to me directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or by visiting my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Now to this week's episode. Today's guest is David Roberts. David is the CEO and president of Vera Mobility, the global leader in smart mobility technology. So we're talking today about smart mobility, smart transportation. What is it? What does that term even mean? So it gets thrown around. I think a lot of people, including myself, don't really know when we're talking about smart mobility, what are we actually talking about? What are the pie in the sky ideas, the kind of far out down the road ideas? What's actually in practice right now? How does this technology work? Where can we see it in our everyday life? How is it making transportation safer and more effective, more accessible? All of these things. Awesome discussion with David here. One reason as well that this is a noteworthy episode. So this is the first ever live in-person episode that I've recorded for Future Mobility Podcast. So we recorded this in September, late September 2022 down in Austin, Texas during the Move America event where Future Mobility was the uh, the lead podcast partner. Great experience. So meeting with David in person, talking with him, I think we were able to connect, have, I really enjoyed the discussion, what he brought to it. That being said, you can definitely hear that this was my first experience recording a podcast live. So I'm not an, an IT, a sound engineer by any means. It's, I made a uh, couple of tactical mistakes here, which unfortunately you can hear and that the sound quality isn't quite what you typically probably expect listening to the podcast where we're doing this stuff over Zoom. I'll learn moving forward, but um, especially about halfway through, you can hear I made a technical error of having David pick up the mic because it was getting louder on the conference floor and I thought that was going to help things. Turns out it did not. Um, so sorry about that. Sorry you have to kind of suffer through the slightly diminished sound quality here. With that being said, it's not that bad. You can hear everything fine. And also, I, I really think it's worth sticking around because particularly the second half of this conversation, I really enjoyed, got a lot out of it. One of my favorite conversations and podcasts that I've recorded in some time. So I'll leave it there for now. Please enjoy this conversation with David Roberts. Today I'm joined by David Roberts. David, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this has the uh, the unique 
this is, this is the first time I'm doing a podcast in person, which I, we were talking about beforehand, right? So starting the Future Mobility Podcast in early 2020, it's 120 episodes in and it's all been via Zoom. So we're really excited about this opportunity to talk talk in person. We, we are at a conference where I move America in Austin, Texas. There's a chance you might get some background noise, but I think uh, yeah. we'll, we'll be all, all set here. So David, do you mind kind of setting the stage and introducing yourself and fair mobility? What, what are you guys doing? Yeah, of course. So well, thank, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, so David Roberts, CEO of Bear Mobility. Uh, we are one of the global leaders in smart mobility and how that sort of represents itself for us is we have three business units that are uh, across the globe. One is com where we commercial services, where we work with commercial fleets. We're the number one provider of toll and violation management solutions for commercial fleets in North America. Where does that show up or how would you most know us? If you've ever rented a car from Hertz, Avis or Enterprise, and you have that little box up in the window for the tolling, that's us. Everything related to that program is supported by Vera Mobility, and we offer it to the three largest racks here, and we're also building out that capability in Europe. So that's number one. And then number two is government solutions, uh, where we partner with cities and municipalities around the world on their safety initiatives through automated enforcement. So that's red light cameras, speed cameras, school bus stop arm cameras, bustling cameras. Um, and uh, we do that globally. We're, uh, we're headquartered in Mesa, Arizona, but we're, we operate around the world. And then third is what we call parking solutions. So we have parking management software as well as hardware, so that's access control, pay stations, things like that. And we provide to universities as well as to small cities and municipalities around the country. Cool, yeah, thanks for that, that intro. And yeah. I, I will dive into probably, probably each of those. Uh, that's okay. Would you mind... So smart mobility, the, the, the term, right? And I think this means a lot of different things to different people. I, I had kind of my own thought that's transitioned over time. How do you define smart mobility for yourself and for your company? Yeah, it would be an interesting poll to like just randomly take your podcast and ask people with the microphone around this environment today because I suspect you wouldn't get a consistent answer. So the way that we think about it is really twofold. Um, first, there's clearly a technology related to which is all the technology that is making mobility safer and easier. That's ITS, that's congestion charging, that's what's embedded in the vehicle, that's what's outside of the vehicle. All those technologies come together. It's a really broad portfolio. In our world, what we say is it's not, it's not about the technology, but we say it's our purpose is to enrich lives by making mobility safer and easier. So we really think about outcomes. How do we make things safer by reducing fatalities related to car crashes? And two, how do we make it easier? So how do we reduce friction from people, any person anywhere in the world getting from A to B? So, and smart mobility is the technology, or rather the portfolio of technology that allows that to happen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I like the focus on, on outcome because, you know, engineering background, I, I think a lot of us engineers tend to uh, get excited by the technology, technology development, but it's really the implementation and application of this technology in a way that makes some meaningful impact that we're, we're after. And yeah, and, our, and I think our phase of the industry is such that we're still lots of really cool uh, energetic startups. Um, we've, really, we've gone around the world looking at different companies and uh, it's super exciting, but ultimately there needs to be an outcome to have a viable business case. And I think more, and you can see here today, a lot of people headed toward electric, you know, charging, things like that. That's a use case that has power, and you, you can see why that's taken off. Yeah, and I'd, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on the state of the industry, right? So there's been various, I don't know, 
promises, whether direct or implied, about you know futuristic cities, a mm-hmm. smart city. You think of I don't know, almost Jetsons, like not flying, but like you, you think of like yeah. everything automated and connected, and like there's this utopia state, which we certainly aren't there, right? No. But yeah. what what is what is the reality of of where we are and how this and, and you already touched on some of this about like uh, what you're providing, but like. Where, where, do we, where are we already seeing this technology making a positive impact? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, um, I think the promise of smart mobility is certainly there. I think what uh, both um, cities and end users and investors are learning is it's going to require patience. Um, if you were to look around, uh, you know, we're a relatively large company, $3 billion market cap publicly traded very few companies of our size and scale that are in the category, very few. Um, mostly it's all startups because we're still looking for the killer app as it were that will sort of be the um, sort of the beta max versus DVD, like who, who's going to win out on all these different sort of use cases. Um, and I remember when we first went public I got a ton of questions about autonomous vehicles because there was a concern that autonomous vehicles, there's a lot of, a lot of conversation around that that in some way, shape, or form is going to disintermediate our business. And I would say at the time, this was four years ago, yeah, I don't, I don't think you need to worry about that anytime soon. And at the time, people were saying, hey, by the end of the decade. And now I think what they're saying is like 2050. It's just going to take some time for the technology to catch up with the expectations of the users and the users to say, I want to change my life to use this technology. So the great news, I think we're super early in what I consider a very exciting space um, that being said, um, I would say the area that seems to be getting by far the most uh, traction is electric right now. That seems to be the high level of focus from, if the OEMs are focused on it, then all the supply chain and distribution are focused on it, so that's what's happening. Um, what, do, what do Vera's offerings or what your, your participation look like in an electrified vehicle future? Yeah, right now, I mean, candidly, we don't do a lot. There are probably two areas where it'll manifest itself. So. When we do parking for cities um, and people need a location, you, you would probably see over time that when you park, you would also be able to charge. That a parking meter would have a dual function of both um, saving the real estate and charging for the real estate, and in addition to that, charging for charging your vehicle as well as charging you for the use of that char- uh, electricity. Um, that's number one. But that's a bit. That, I think that's a ways away. Uh, that's over the next five to ten years. And then number two is because we work with commercial fleets globally, they're all thinking about one of our largest customers is Hertz, for an example. They've announced several times about the number of electric vehicles that they have um, created. There's, they've announced a partnership with BP around charging infrastructure, so they're really committed to that. So our goal is just to go listen to our customers and find out where we could be helpful. Um, we have a lot of assets deployed around the world that are supporting these rental car, as rental car companies in airport locations. So. If we can find a use case, we'll, we'll try to help them around that as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe it'd be interesting to go across the three different uh, verticals you yeah. mentioned, dive a little deeper. So maybe starting with commercial, since we're talking about something yeah. like a rental fleet, can you, can you pick one or a couple of your technologies, whether it's the toll management or whatever, and expand on what's what's the need that you're serving here? Yeah. How are you doing that? And Yeah. Uh, yeah. So originally, uh, back in 2008, I believe our initial, uh, our founder who, led, who started our company back then, um, had the idea of working with rental car companies. He would say that he had the idea in the shower. I don't know that that's true or not, but that's what he said. Uh, that, hey, rental car, at that time, for a rental car to access a toll road, they either had to 
stop and pay cash or they would get a violation and the rental car companies would just get all these violations coming to them and it was a real pain and the, then they would go back and try to charge the user or something like that. So that wasn't working. And so what they needed was a technology that would allow, one, for their renters to access toll roads easily, and two, because those rental cars move around, it needed had to access nationwide. So what we did is our technology, uh, we created integrations, electronic integrations, with all of the 54 major toll authorities in North America so that we could then, number two, make payment. We prepay and then we make payment on behalf of renters. And three, we then are integrated into the, the rental billing system so that we can then charge the renter for that fee at the end of when they turn their vehicle back in. So really our technology is twofold. One, it's a uh, SaaS-based uh, software program that is, has a high-level integrations and it's sort of connecting the from the toll when it happens to the renter when they turn on their vehicle and everything that happens between. And then we have a high level of actual sort of on the court resources. We're managing transponders, we're putting them in, we're in airport locations actually managing this process. We have a call center. Anything related to these programs is fully outsourced to their mobility. Gotcha, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And what what's the difficult part of that process? So like from, I don't know, oh, as yeah. you explained it, it seems, I'm sure there's stuff in the back end, but it seems uh, kind of obvious. Yeah. yeah, let's just put it. I think a lot of people th think that. Um, first of all, integration, the. The, the software integration with the toll authority is actually quite simple. Uh, it's that toll authorities aren't required to integrate with you. They have other uh, uses for their tech resources and they may or may not give you the time to do it. And so the challenge was our founder took eight years, 10 years to actually build up that whole platform because it's really important these vehicles move around and you have to be able to support them regardless of what toll region they're in. So that was I would say that was a quite a difficult one. The second one is, um, you know, we have over three and a half million vehicles that are enrolled our, on our platforms and making sure that you are uh, connecting the right transponder to the right vehicle to the right rental agreement is actually a pretty robust process. Yeah, it makes sense. Anything else on the commercial side that you would highlight of uh, particularly interesting yes. offerings? Yeah, so uh, the, in addition to that, we have, um, as we listen to our customers, we've expanded. So we also do violation management. So if you rent a car, maybe the best way to describe it, when the owner of the vehicle and the driver of the vehicle are not the same, that's where our technology steps in. So we're good at connecting those two disparate things. And in the shared economy, this is only going to increase. So that's really good for us because whether you're in an Uber or whatever, cars run tolls, they get violations, they get parking tickets. And we need to make sure that the right person, that, that that is allocated to the right person. So as an example, we do, um, some of the work we do is, I would say, uh, we, we use a terminology called crushing stones, which is, it's not the most elegant technology, but it's, it's a value. So one of them is title, and, uh, excuse me, uh, title and registration. So if you go, you're in Detroit, I don't know, you have to register your vehicle, or sometimes you have to go to DMV to get your title exchange or something like that, that's not, uh, it's not a fancy process when you have to go work with the DMV. So what you have to imagine is that you have 3,000 vehicles that you need to register in one day. How, how difficult that could be. So we've created electronic integrations with 18 DMVs across the country where we can do all of that electronically on behalf of fleets to make sure that their vehicles have the right, um, the right title, right registration, the right sticker on the plate. Um, because if they're out of compliance, they can't rent that vehicle. And so that's another area of... Um, where we've used technology to make a very manual process more elegant and more streamlined for our customers. 
Gotcha, yeah, and it, it sounds like, I mean, certainly software development task here, but I don't know, I'm guessing it, it sounds like there's a big networking effect here of yeah. you need to have relationships with the right people and have them willing to play ball. and. That's exactly right. So there's not one DMV, there's not one parking authority, there's not one toll road. So we've created the network to give them um, a single point of access to all of those critical sort of driver-related services that help the fleets go. Now, we only, and we only do that with fleets, meaning we only work with commercial fleets. We don't look, work with um, uh, consumers. Uh, what's the incentive for so, so someone like a DMV to, to work alongside Vera? Well, it makes it easier for them, too, because it effectively reduces their cost. Um, from a toll authority perspective, uh, if, you know, for them to get a violation, so one, they're not getting paid. Two, they have to then use the cost to go find this person, and then the chances of them getting paid are actually quite small because people just get the notice from the toll authority and they throw it away or what have you. So um, from our standpoint, the toll authorities love us because they get paid every single time. They never have a violation with three and a half million vehicles. That's a, that's a big plus for them. Yeah, a little anecdote about how this, this system maybe works, works well. One of the last times I was in Europe, I rented a car and driving around in the Netherlands didn't realize that they had a bunch of cameras around. And I don't think I was speeding too too bad, but I was going a couple of miles an hour yeah. over the speed limit and came back to $130 of, of tickets. And went, oh. Yeah, so oddly enough, we have a business in Europe that does exactly that. We give tick, we, when a foreign registered, when someone that is not domiciled in the country gets a ticket, either rent or car, they drive into the country, we actually have a business that works with the issuing authority and we'll find you and, and send you that ticket. So you may have actually gotten a ticket from us. You could be a customer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So glad to be a customer in this situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's maybe talk about the uh, tra transition to the, the government side. Uh, actually, real quick, as it gets louder, maybe it makes more sense to hold the, the mic up. Sure. Like if you want to actually grab the mic rather than. Oh, okay. Or, or, or I guess either, either way. Okay. Um, maybe like this? Sure. Yeah. Okay. That, that, could, that could work. Um, yeah, so, so talking about the government, transitioning to the government side of the business, can, can you talk a bit about what that looks like, what, um, a bit further about kind of what yeah. the, the offerings so are? The, the technology there is, uh, depending on whether you're at U.S. overseas, is really around camera technology. So we have uh, very specific uh, camera technology that are either one on a fixed pole at, a, at an intersection where they're monitoring red light um, or in a specific intersection where they're managing speed or they're even on the side of a bus or a school bus, so when the arm is extended and the lights are flashing, if people kind of blow by on the other side, we can issue a violation. The principal use is to track the speed, direction, as well as capture the license plate in real time. And then we have software that processes that information, we ensure that it is, and then we give it back to local police via software. They say, yes, this is a violation, and then we print, mail, and collect payment on that. Um, in any one of those cases. I guess maybe the, the two interesting questions here. So why why isn't this more widely deployed now, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know, again, anecdotally, just this weekend I was driving, trying to cross a relatively busy road in, in the Detroit area. A Class 8 semi-truck tried to, thought they could make it through the light. They couldn't. They Ooh. got stuck and oh. the full light cycle went and not a single car went through. I'm like, oh, I don't think that person, that driver is there going was, to yeah. be any... Because that's Michigan where they don't have photo enforcement. So the question is, why don't why doesn't every state use this as a tool? Because the reality is, one, um, it works. It's highly, highly, highly accurate. The technology behind this stuff really works. Uh, number two is, it's a force multiplier, meaning 
you now can use technology to do something that a, re a regular police officer no longer needs to do manually, meaning wasting their time on a road, getting in harm's way, pulling people over, all that is eliminated because of the technology, and they can go do things that are more meaningful to protect and serve their local community. Why are there issues? So there's 21 states that have some form of photo enforcement today, and you have to have legislation. So each state has to say, yes, we approve cities to have these types of technologies. Some states historically, uh, and this is starting to change in a real-time way, were less open to the idea. And generally, it's a political issue only, meaning um, you know, some people have, hey, this is an invasion of privacy. Uh, this is a tax. This is what have you. And that creates um, noise in the legislative process and makes it a bit harder to get through. But if you think about it, there's 21 states. Um, New York is one of the you know, largest leading uh, global leaders of using photo enforcement. And more people are recognizing, hey, this stuff actually works really well. Um, it's free to us, meaning it's our CapEx that we put in the ground. They don't pay for it and they make money on it. They don't make, it's not like a profit center, but it allows them to invest back in the community in some other safety program. And I realize before I say this how silly of a question this is on the surface, but I'm going to ask, is the optimal situation for everyone to obey all traffic laws at all times and on the expressway drive exactly 70 and, you know, stop at every yellow light and do, do it like... Yeah, so the, I think the best way to answer that is through a specific use case. So not in the U.S., but overseas or in Europe, they have what's called point-to-point -point speed enforcement, meaning you're on a certain road and it's time over distance. Uh, here in the United States, sometimes you'll see, you're probably way too young for this, where they had the auto sign that this area is covered uh, by airplane. You know, you might see these signs off in the desert in Arizona or places like that. I don't know that they actually do that, but they used to have these signs. Um, because what they do is measure time over distance. What happens is when everyone on a particular highway is uniform in speed versus um, you going 70, me going 55, somebody else going 85, you reduce the risk of collision and, you, and everyone actually gets to the, the, from A to B much faster and much safer in a uniform manner versus all the variability that occurs. So, and there's certain stretches of highway that are curvy or may just have a lot of volume that if you can condense that, you, you fundamentally shift the safety of that particular intersection. So in that case, yeah, it makes sense for everyone to kind of drive the same way. Um, I'm not sure that there are instances where people are reacting to certain accidents or things that are happening on the road that they don't have to veer off of that. But that, that's an example where it actually works. Yeah, and I think the other situations of school buses and red lights and uh, bus lanes and such probably are even more obvious why we those those rules laws are in in place for good reason yeah, and we see the video i mean when you see video of kids stepping off a bus and the car zooming by and they're having to kind of jerk back or getting hit by a vehicle um that's one of the few products that we have that when we first launched it uh, we actually got calls from parents saying hey i'd like this on my kids bus um, so people i think recognize the efficacy and the, and the purpose of why they have it how's the data at looking at the effectiveness of rolling out this type of enforcement technology and actually driving the action that you desire. Right? So incentivizing or disincentivizing bad behavior yeah. theoretically is a very good way to do this, but what, what's, what's the data look like? Yeah, but it's almost uniformly true that whenever you put a photo enforcement camera at either an intersection or, or for speed, 
there is a material drop in accidents and a material drop in speeding that and so dangerous driving the, the reality is when most people are speeding they're also distracted and that makes for a bad recipe right um, so uh, to later today in my speech I'll talk about we have a customer up in Canada that deployed and they had a 50% reduction in speeding and a 70% reduction in criminal speed so criminal speed is usually between 11 to 20 miles over the stated speed limit and so when people are reducing to that amount that that has a material impact on accidents as well as on fatalities. Yeah, could, could you expand on that? So I think you're, you're talking later about a data-driven approach to, right, to looking yeah. at the, uh, the effectiveness of smart mobility. Can you expand on what, what that looks like? Yeah, I mean, the, the um, well, let's think of it this way. They wouldn't use it, they wouldn't go to all the political challenges of deploying photo enforcement if it didn't work. And so when they can, we, you know, what we do is we look, um, across like if we're putting in red light cameras or in speed cameras we do an analysis of the geographic area we find where the high areas of violation are and then we put the cameras in there and then we provide data on a, there's a on our software platform to our customers so they can see the absolute reduction now it never goes to zero and the reason it never goes to zero is because it's it w the same people don't pass an intersection every single day there's always new people but overall in those high-value areas like school zones or work zones, we can have a material impact on the reduction of uh, putting people in harm's way related to people that are speeding. Gotcha, and uh, jumping around a, a bit, but another anecdote, but uh, this is shared by multiple people that are in my close circle, and maybe this is just Michigan, but it seems like reckless, dangerous driving has increased in the last... I don't know, since, since the pandemic started, if you want to pick a point, whether Absolutely. there's any correlation. Yeah, so, so are, are you seeing that, and is that being a big driver? Yeah, this is, uh, and this isn't just a bare mobility observation. There's, um, I mean, there's medical doctors, there's the government that are saying, hey, we have a problem. So last year, there was about 45,000 people killed in traffic fatalities, and that is significantly up, meaning if you were to look at the curb, not that people can see my hands on a podcast, obviously, but it is a steep, it was headed down, it dipped for obviously from pandemic and it is literally going almost vertically up and you know i think there's lots of reasons as to why but the punchline is hey this is a problem that's getting worse not better and we as a sort of in an industry need to really get focused on how do we how do we solve this and what are the portfolio options not just photo enforcement what are other things we can do to change the the way that drivers uh, are behaving because it's putting too many people in harm's way and so what do you see as what, what are the biggest points where you get pushback from whether it's communities or governments or whoever where you're, where you're trying to roll out and trying to sell them on this idea you mentioned invasion privacy which i'd be curious to get your thoughts expand there how, how you overcome that but what, what are the other yeah. you know, big pain points invasion of privacy is one and I, I think it's more the idea of it than the reality of it so what they were saying in some states you have to get a, um, a what's called driver liability meaning you have to take a picture of the face of the driver as well as the license plate people have a an aversion to that uh, in some states. In some states, they don't care. In some other states, that's a problem. Um, and then they would also say that it's a tax, meaning um, why not, they might say, hey, just hire more police officers, as an example, uh, versus they can put in a completely low cost, works 24 hours a day, never has to do any, you know, you don't have to feed them or get, take care of them, they never take a time off, and you can have this really positive outcome. Um, that tends to be the, the, the biggest issues. and. To, to be fair, this is a political issue. It can often get connected on party lines, so to speak. Um, but the good news is for our industry that over the last, what I would say, four to five years, 
more states are recognizing, hey, this is this needs to happen, and we need to, you know, we need to leverage this technology. I'll give you a good example. Georgia, my home state, uh, is a pretty conservative, you know, traditionally called a red state. Now I don't know what it is. It could be purple. I'm not really sure anymore. But regardless, it was. Um, but they have all three types of photo form. I mean, they have red light speed and school bus because they recognize city of Atlanta and the surrounding communities that have really embraced this because they recognize the efficacy of it. And even the naysayers have sort of dropped the issue of it. So, but those are the, typically it's, hey, are you taxing us more than you should? It's a sort of a government overreach is, is the used to be common objective. And do you run much into, so there's a perception that like, cop parked on the side of the road is doing some positive thing right and just driving by the cop you you uh, pump the brakes and which which i think there's some some truth to that mm -hmm. from a speed limiting factor but it sounds like you guys you can address the speed aspect it, did you get any did you get any pushback of people so well the presence of a physical cop maybe is a crime deterrent in other ways that you're removing cops from the street and that that is, if we do get that, it's on the bottom of the list. Um, because the reality is, in most cases, when we're doing speed, we're using a mobile unit, so it's actually a vehicle that looks like a police vehicle that's out on the road. So it, it has the has the same effect. Yeah, that, that's the conference. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the conference telling us uh, things are getting started. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's good. Good to know. And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe just a quick quick detour. So you mentioned at the beginning autonomous vehicles, right? And that. Uh, yeah, overhyped. Certainly, a few years ago, we've gone through a nice uh, kind of moment of truth here, where people are realizing, well, maybe this problem is a little harder to to solve than we might expect. With that being said, there are some pilots, there's some rollout of robo taxis mm -hmm. and autonomous trucking fleets, which hopefully I'm rooting for. Oh, me too. Scale up in the in the coming years. Um, what complexity, or is there any complexity that's introduced by adding? automated vehicles to the road? Yeah, I think it's more of the, um, it, it really comes down to a safety issue. The, the level of detail that an autonomous vehicle needs to understand about its environment, its ability to process information quickly and make decisions for that vehicle in real time, that's not easy. It's really difficult when you, most of the, many of the pilots rather for autonomous vehicles are actually in Arizona, which is where we're headquartered. And the reason is, is it's sunny every day. We have big, flat, wide roads. So they can drive around much easier. But I was in San Francisco last week, and that would be difficult for an autonomous vehicle to drive around there with uh, people moving all the time, jaywalking, smaller narrow streets, hills, uh, fog, all those. There's, there's some challenges. I think more importantly, or uh, I'm sure the technology will be solved. I have no concern about that. I'm sure it will be solved quickly. There's still the legislation that needs to go. How, how do we figure out the laws related to this? Who's responsible? Um, and insurance and law and so I think those are going to be some of the things that will take a bit longer because it's so new relative to the legislative process. Yep, yeah, makes sense and I also I imagine services like what you're offering to some extent are prerequisite to rolling out these technology right so you need some way to be able to monitor and receive payment from and ticket autonomous vehicles if they don't behave. Yeah, they have to know who's, who's going to get if they run a toll which Presumably they would. Who pays for it? Uh, is, how do they make sure that the person in the vehicle is actually paying for it? How do they know that they ran a toll? There's some. There is some tech enablement that we can provide in that in that situation for sure. And I'm, I imagine a physical cop could handle that. But I, if nothing else, it seems like you you guys do would do a nice job of kind of lowering the education level required. I think so. Yeah, but it's curious. I mean, when the, will people speed in an autonomous car? I have no idea. Like I don't. 
in a robo taxi who controls the speed of the vehicle does the taxi does the drive the person in the back seat like all, all things to be uh, uncovered for sure cool so let's let's transition to the third main topic that, that you mentioned parking uh-huh. uh, associated so, so can you expand on kind of what, what does that look like for yeah car? so for us we we, uh, we bought a company last year called t2 they're the number one provider of parking management solutions for universities so um, actually the largest customer we have is Texas A&M which is about two and a half hours drive from here uh, what what they do is they provide the software for the parking um, managers if you will within a within a given university to help them how to, you know, think of all the different use cases for parking at a university maybe the most complex which is you have students you have visitors you have faculty you have games and uh, you know football games and things like that how, how do you throttle the demand how do you charge for it how do you give a violation how do you follow up on the violation that the software we do helps them manage all of that and then we have the actual payment system for them whether it's either mobile or actual physical hardware that they want in a particular garage as an example that uh, is connected into that system as well are you guys getting into the drive-in drive-out type technology right of yeah LPR cameras absolutely so today now people can just drive in they have a camera that takes a picture of the license plate and either they can pay for it via mobile phone if they have an app or they can actually um, uh, they may have pre-registered for an account it just debits their account it just kind of depends and I, I think this is going to be a uh, vague question so bear, bear, bear with me but the, the general situation of parking right the parking experience I don't think uh, many people are going to say is, is optimized right? no. whether you're on a university campus you're in an urban area whatever the the process of okay let's try to find a garage get in figure out where you go where you can park how you pay you lose your ticket you gotta pay on the way out there's a trip whatever it's it's not it not as streamlined as theoretically it, it could be can you can you speak at all to that point and how where, where you see kind of the opportunities for parking to improve and how you're well, playing a role there yeah there's just a lot of compl- there's no standardization so uh you could park in one garage in a city and it you have to get a ticket the next one could use lpr uh, the next one could use park mobile or a mobile app of some kind so it really just depends um our, our world is just working with cities to s- how do we set up their parking structure so that it's optimized for users ideally that's going to be through really clear communication to the people that are parking um, real ease of payment um, now the reality is the best way to do it is through a mobile app or some sort of mobile technology with sort of just kind of putting your phone up and waving it or something like that uh, but the reality is cities have to be considered that they still have to take cash in most cases cities are required to take cash because I don't know the percent, but some percentage are still using, you know, quarters and nickels to drop in the meter. Um, so you have to have a portfolio of solutions up and until eventually you would see you don't need a meter. You really just need a camera at the end of the street to make sure people are there and you're monitoring them against that. Yeah, and that, that last point, you, you or second to last point you brought up is, so I, over time, have fine-tuned kind of the mission of this podcast to be safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible Exciting, that's right. transportation, right? And that, that last piece, it's, it's so easy to think about this future state where it's, yeah, drive in, drive out, everyone's got a cell phone, right? You all, yeah. got, you all got Apple Pay or whatever, do it, it's super simple, but that's not the case. Not not everyone is in that situation. No, it's not, and, and it's in particular municipalities more so than universities have to be very aware of that because um, if they're, you know, it's, there's, if they want to get reelected, they need to make sure that they're providing access for everyone, and the reality is everyone doesn't have Apple Pay. They are still using quarters and nickels, you know, I forget the number, but a lot of people don't even have bank accounts, and so they have to find a way to have access to your point. Uh, anything else on the, the parking side? No, I think, that, yeah, I think we covered it, yeah. 
Cool. Yeah. Su- super interesting. I don't know, a- array of topics, and li- like I said, the smart, smart mobility. The- these topics are things that uh, I haven't dug into to a- a- as much as I would have liked. So so far in the podcast, yeah. and that you know, s- seem they're not as uh, exciting on the surface as electrification and automation. But this is certainly a big part of the push into an improved state of future mobility. Yeah, there is a bit of um, that's a great. It's, it's it's a nice way to say we don't do really sexy things. Um, but what's interesting is we do the things that are actually um, valued by our customers. They have to do them. And so we're probably at the beginning phase of the smart mobility as the technology catches up. Um, but you're, you're right. We're not doing, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we do kind of crushing stone type work, but we take really hard manual processes and make them electronic. And that seems to, seems to work well. This We've already covered, I think, a good... Uh, breadth of, of what Vera is doing, but maybe taking a, a ste- step back in a different approach, thinking of okay, real, real world lessons learned, right? So this, this is an interesting topic. When you develop technology, you roll it out, oftentimes you deploy it in the real world and you realize something like the coin situation. Yeah. Well, shoot, we, we missed this or whatever. Anything else come to mind of some, something where there was an idea top that you th- oh thought gosh, was kind yeah. of home run, and then you put in the real world, and you're like, well, we, it's, we got it didn't work. Thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, I wish I could say, no, that's never happened to me. But of course it did, because, I mean, the reality is you have to get innovation as a process that requires failure. Uh, and so uh, several years ago, we because of our capabilities on our tolling business, we built out a consumer app, and we call it Peasy, P-E-A-S-Y. And the idea was that we could... Uh, consumers could use our app, and they still can. By the way, you can still use this app if you if you want to. Uh, you can download it on the App Store uh, to access toll roads, so that they could have the same benefit as a rental car and basically travel around the country. And we thought it was a really great idea. Uh, we did testing, we did all that we could, um, but the reality is the adoption was just much, much, much lower than we would have thought. Um, because the reality is, most people in that case that are using a toll road are kind of they get out of their driveway, they get in their car, they go to work, and they come back the exact same way. The, the benefit of the app wasn't there when the transponder worked. So uh, the, the 99 cent solution hanging in their window was just as good as the app on their phone. And therefore, they now if they were traveling and you're going outside your home network, then it provided some value. But that's a really small subset of people that are driving. And when, when there is an activity like this, right, where you, you, you launch something, it doesn't uh, catch on or solve the issue as you as you'd like, how, as a leader, how, how do you try to think about that? Or how I mean, to, look, you gotta, you, you want to, you, you ask a lot of questions. You're saying, hey, did we, did, how did we think about this? Did we, how did we uh, think about lower adoption versus higher adoption? But ultimately, you, this isn't the, those types of things are not the, let's get, you know, slam our hand on a table and get real mad about it. I think you want to create a culture of innovation. You have to be accepting of failure. And you just say, hey, let's let's document what we learned. Let's apply that to our next effort, and you sort of move on. It just it was, and in concept, the if you put you know you take the PowerPoint and you put it all on paper and it's, everything looks great, you're like, hey, this is awesome. Let's do it. And we all knew that. And then, hey, you know what? We were all wrong. Okay, so we were wrong. Move on. <laughs> next. Is there anything in the other direction of you know something you roll out where you're like, yeah, it's. Maybe this hits. Maybe it's a small market, and then you, you br- bring it out to people, and you realize, wow, there's a real demand and want for this. You know, I think the one that I w- that comes to mind is probably our um, crossing guard, which is our school bus stop arm camera. So we were one of the leaders in the industry that kind of brought that to North America. 
Um, it's a phenomenon that exists mostly in North America anyway, not really overseas. Um, and you know, because of our experience with the political aspects of photo enforcement, I think we were slightly concerned, uh, but because this had the opposite effect where people, the end users were saying, hey, this is a great idea, I want this in my community, and uh, it's a way for um, local you know, civil leaders to sort of stand up and say, hey, we're doing something to protect our kids. That has been a, a really uh, profound impact, and if you carry that into uh, school zone speed, um, that is a, that both of those have really taken off, because what we call, you know, phone enforcement used to be, hey, put a red light in an intersection. Now we call it purpose-built, meaning we have a camera that's designed for a very specific use case, which is hard to argue. It's hard to argue that you shouldn't, that you should be allowed to speed in a school zone. It's, who's going to make that argument? Um, if you do, you should stop, you should be you know, have some sort of penalty associated, and same with school bus. So those have been really positive uptakes from my perspective. How, how do you, how does Vera Mobility balance, so you have this, my perception here, correct me if I'm wrong, you, ha you have this mission of making things safer, I think, as you, mm -hmm. as you alluded to, which outcome driven, you want to do positive things, make a positive impact. You also have the reality, which you've alluded to a couple times in your language, of yeah. these, these are political situations. Mm -hmm. There are incentives on multiple sides that are not directly aligned with just, hey, let's make things as good as possible. There's there's other motives, whether it's politicians, whether it's what's otherwise, there, there's a swirling mix here. Right? So, so how, do, how do you think of trying to work towards this North Star of safety while also dealing with the reality that you need to understand the landscape that you're in to actually implement the technology yeah. and make the progress you want to make? Well, the good news is we've been doing it for a long time and we've been quite successful with it. So I think at this point, it, it comes down to a, we, when we say that our goal is to enrich lives by making mobility safer and easier, we actually really mean that. And we know that automated enforcement is a tool to do that. So it's one of those things where we work with uh, lobbyists and legislators around the country to make sure that they understand the value that they're, they're coming to the table with the, hey, this isn't a money-making scam. We have the highest level of integrity. We're going we're gonna to make a positive impact in your community. And the reality is, if someone came to us and said, hey, I need to make the money, we probably wouldn't even want to work with them. Because if your goal is to make money from photo enforcement, that's probably not, uh, not, that, not going to work long term. Uh, many of our competitors in this category have fallen to the wayside because of things like bribery and things like that. And we've really, really avoided that. We have a high, high level of integrity. And probably the thing that most of our customers would value about us as much is our, our, um, our reputation for delivering a really positive outcome. Cool. Yeah, there's certainly something to be said for a yeah. purpose-driven company that actually works. Yeah, that actually believes in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So a little bit of a left turn here, and then, yeah. we'll, then we'll wrap up. But to talking a little bit about, you know, personally, one of the things I so future mobility. We talk a lot about mobility. Also, one of the key aspects of making a positive impact is actually being able to lead ourselves and our companies, mm -hmm. and, right, and do those things. So I, I always like to try to d dive in and yeah. learn from from people. So can you speak maybe first about your your experience coming into Vera? What were you doing before? Sure. And kind of what what led you to take this position? Yeah. So. Uh, I used to say the first half of my career was in consulting, but now I'm old, and so it's maybe the first third at this point. Um, so I started off in management consulting, was working in uh, new product development innovation, uh, went to grad school, and then kind of got into the role of the right-hand man to the founder. So I was part of a startup consulting group called Acuity Group that uh, was pretty successful out of Chicago. Um, they went on and sold to Accenture years later. 
Uh, I then became the CEO of a startup company with a founder again uh, that had a, um, a software platform that did stock option valuation that has nothing to do with, by the way, until I got here I did nothing in the mobility world. It was all different sort of management positions. Uh, we sold that to Merrill Lynch. Uh, I stayed there for a while. Then I became, I went to another group of founders, said, hey, I've sort of been the guys, hey, you need to get us to our next exit or our next evolution. Uh, went into a company called Billingtree where I was the CEO that's a payment processor. Uh, and during that time there, I met one of the founders of then called American Traffic Solutions. And he and I were just friends really for a year or two. And then he said, hey, we've, we've got this leadership position. We're looking to bring in a kind of a chief operating officer type guy. Would you consider that? Uh, and I got to know him and I took the role. And so my job at that time was solidify the business. Uh, I changed out the management team and then we sold the business to a private equity firm a couple years later. And then with the private equity, uh, Platinum was the name of the private equity company, a really great company. And we, uh, we did a bunch of acquisitions to kind of bring us to where we were. And then we, we were one of the first SPACs. Uh, if you remember SPACs, they, they don't, people don't like to talk about it anymore because we do because we're actually one of the really successful ones. So, uh, but that's, that's kind of my journey of how I got to the company. And anything, yeah, and the, the SPACs, um, the, the barrier to SPAC, I think, dropped over time, and that's maybe why there's <laughs> so many. Yeah, most of the companies that went SPAC were not actually, viable. we were actually profitable. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, let's maybe about that process and more about the way it was utilized. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. But, yes, yeah, so, so anything anything you can highlight, so, I don't been in consulting roles, small company, now relatively large company, mm -hmm. right? Uh, what, what, are, what are the key principles that, Kind of have transcended that for you, or that you've learned from the time that really have driven you. Yeah, you know, I think a lot about leadership. Um, I will. I think one, I've had some really great influencers in my life, uh, starting with my dad to certain bosses that I've worked with. And I think we all sort of take a little bit from the people that we work for. Uh, the number one thing that I would say is critical to leaders, especially in today's environment, is it's not about you. Uh, there is a fundamental that you need to be about the organization, about you need to be looking to celebrate and build up the purpose of the organization and the people that work there it's not about you having a fancy title or making money or any of those kind of things that when you generally care more about others than you do self I think that's that's the, the beginning of a really really good leader uh, and that's hard because we're all sort of self-absorbed sometimes and that, that can be a challenge but I have found that to be one the most appealing factor of people that I've had a chance to work for and it's certainly something in my own personal integrity that I, I find is I, I'd like to be someone that does something for others, not for myself. Any specific resources that have helped you? So you, so you mentioned mentors and, and such, which obviously awesome, but to think about you know the audience who doesn't necessarily yeah. have access to the exact people that you work with. And any, any resources, whether it's books, thought leaders, otherwise, that have really... I have so many. Like this, this is such an area for me. So... It's important. So my dad, uh, who passed away a long time ago, was one of the founders of the time management industry. So you're way too young for this. But there used to be a day when you would literally get a binder with a calendar and a to-do list, and you'd go to a workshop, and you'd buy the binder, and you'd go and learn how to be more effective in your time. Well, he was literally one of the founders. So unfortunately, uh, I was getting self-help books at a very, very early age. That kind of, I think that may have scarred me for life. The first book my dad gave me, and I kid you not, I was 13 years old, was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. <laughs> and I remember trying to read that at the time and realizing this is the dumbest book I've ever thought of. 
and now I'm 52 years old and I would say, wow, that, that's a really good book. Uh, the concepts of that book uh, are still unbelievably um, foundational to what I would consider being an effective leader and effective executive. Um, so another thinker that I, I have a lot of admiration for is uh, Patrick Lencioni, uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, I think would probably be his most popular book. Uh, he's written a slew of them. He has a really thoughtful and pragmatic and I think values-aligned way to think about leadership. I would consider him probably one of the best. And I think one of my mentors had an expression which is, our leaders are readers. Uh, and I would encourage any leader to make sure that they're spending time reading a book. Uh, I, I don't travel without a book. I'm sort of a nerd like that. Um, and by the way, if my dad saw me today, he'd go, I can't believe you read this much. Like, they couldn't get me to read when I was a young kid. You know, they, I, they couldn't force me. To, and now I'm trying to read, you know, two or three books at a time at any given time. Yeah, it's funny on the, the seven habits where, I mean, I wasn't uh, school aid, but, like, I think it was freshman year of college or whatever, yeah. right? whether it was my, my dad or uh, someone at school or whatever. I, I similarly opened up and like, uh not not really for me or, or like same with Jim Collins stuff back in college. Yeah. Oh yeah. This, but he's yeah. another good reader. Yeah, another good author. Yeah. And, and he, I just think that the the principles are um, they if you go back and read Seven Habits today, and I don't know that I'd read the whole book. They made like the executive summary at this point. They are timeless as it applies to what leaders should be thinking about today. Yeah, for for sure. And I guess the back end of that story. So now that I'm in a leadership role and trying to build a, a company and stuff. The, yeah. Uh, yeah, those, those principles are something I go back to. And Jim Collins, Patrick Lencioni, that are part of our organization, has a kind of foundational. Hey, these these eight to ten books shape the way that we think, and all, all those are on yeah. the list. One of the uh, just uh, Patrick Lencioni has a book called The Ideal Team Player, in that he articulates um, the three attributes of like what a good employee are, and they call it smart, hungry, and humble. Uh, and that's really had an impact on how we at Vero Mobility think about hiring smart, not meaning um, IQ, but actually EQ. So people that are not only smart and understand their business, but also have a high le level of relatability. Hungry meaning they desire for more, and humble meaning they care more about others than self. Um, that's been a real powerful, uh, as we try to frame out our culture at Vero Mobility, that's been something that's been instrumental to me. How about, uh, and maybe this will hit something, maybe not, but like, so this this process, right, of, yeah, you're allergic to self-help, then you realize, hey, so these, these, these principles, whether it's self-help or business wisdom or, or whatever, you realize, hey, there's there's something to these principles. Mm -hmm. Then there's another leap of actually putting those into application, right, and actually learning to lead a team and yourself and your team actually mm -hmm. living out those principles. Do you have any... Uh, roadblocks or stumbles along the way of kind of that from that time of you realize hey I want to do something a certain way oh and then hey, this would be a very it. very long podcast if we go through all the mistakes that I've made in leadership look I mean um, you know one, one of the things that uh, when Sam in fact talks about in his book The Advantage he sort of talks about the desire for organizational clarity and almost if I think of major leadership mistakes and whether that's that could be a hiring mistake it could be an accountability not holding someone accountable something like that it almost always goes back to clarity. I mean, do you know what is expected of you, and do you know how you're doing in relation to those expectations? Um, that is, uh, it's it's hard to do. It's well, it's easy in concept and hard in application. And what I have found in my own leadership, when I'm not doing that full time, um, I have found that um, my leadership is not as good as it could be. I have. Um, I'll, I'll get there's another tidbit for your the audience I had a another leader and he helped me define my so I think one thing leaders need to do is what is your leadership style 
like if I were to talk to the people that work for you, how would they define you? Um, and one of the things that I was taught is we call it the four F's of leadership. So this is perfect for like, it's super easy to understand, which is to be fair, firm, friendly, but not too familiar. Uh, fair meaning in a given situation, we always lean into the side of the employee, give them the benefit of the doubt to be, have grace. Firm is um, uh, unequivocally clear on expectations. Friendly meaning affable, but not too familiar is about not necessarily being best friends with the people that you work with and learning to keep an appropriate level of emotional distance so that you have uh, perspective as a leader to benefit the company and you're not clouded by that judgment. Those, those have stuck with me for 20 years now. Uh, and I think everyone is probably ever I've interviewed has heard that from me in some way, shape or form. Yeah, that's, that's cool. I like the, I like the simple heuristic. Yeah, yeah. For sure. So, yeah, a lot, lot of fun here. I think we covered covered a lot of ground. Really have enjoyed the discussion. Sorry again for whoever's listening. Hopefully the yeah, yeah hopefully this isn't too bad coming over the speaker. Uh, but maybe just a closing question. So, anything we missed here, or if not, what, what would you hope that someone who's listening to this takes away from the discussion? Whether it's thinking about. Smart mobility, vera mobility, whatever. What would you hope someone takes away? You know, I would hope, and, and my talk later today is, hey, again, such great tech. This is such an exciting space. I mean, the, the advent of technology in 50 years, how we're going to look back and see how the world has fundamentally transformed the way people are getting around, as it were, is going to be unbelievable. Uh, but I think the my hope is that people will really look at the opportunity to focus on how we have an environmental impact, meaning... How do we make communities safer, uh, more reliable, uh, more committed to the environment, and that we have a, a leading, uh, we have an obligation as leaders in this industry to be driving that, and I hope that we don't lose sight of that in the midst of the cool tech that we can also create. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great place to leave it. David, thanks again. Yeah, appreciate thanks, your man. time. appreciate it. It was good. Yeah, best of luck to you. Yeah, thank you. Well, there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with David Roberts. So a few things stand out to me. One, towards the end here, talking about his leadership journey, how he thinks about leading an organization. Super, I mean, this is kind of self-interested since this is some of the stuff that I'm really interested in, but I really really enjoyed this conversation with David, talking about how he's evolved as a leader, some of the main influences in his life, how he's thought and progressed over time. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. Also, getting deep into some of these topics about smart transportation, thinking about, okay, what, I don't know, they, they seem like a nuance area as you're, potentially going through some some of these things, you know, traffic or speed monitoring, um, you know, intersection monitoring, um, different communication pathways, all, all these types of things, that toll, toll paying, like they seem like back end, um, something you don't really think about too much. If you do think about it, you're probably like, oh, and like I mentioned here, I got a ticket or a few tickets from, um, I think the only tickets I've ever gotten from speeding from a, uh, like a camera system, which... Yeah, kind of annoying as a as a driver but at the same time if you take a step back like as grand scheme of things this technology including that technology and, and others that Veron is providing has a role to play as we're trying to improve mobility so trying to make things certainly more effective more accessible and then really safer right if we can follow the laws the way they're written have everyone moving the same speed in the same way in a predictable way i think there's, there's a lot of uh, benefit that could be realized here so Really great discussion. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate you uh, making it through the top of the poor sound quality. Like I mentioned again, sorry sorry about that. But uh, cool to be able to do this live. And yeah, as always, more to come next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Mobility podcast brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. 
you have a need for a trusted manufacturing partner for low volumes of highly complex products, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to shoot me a note directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or visit my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Edison specializes in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you're making an impact in the mobility space, we'd love to help. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Future Mobility Podcast.